Welcome to Vine Pair, the podcast where we discuss the experiences you have with a glass in hand. From the Vine Pair offices in New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. Today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the five drinks that define each of us uh, as a way to introduce you to the two of us. And I thought it would be fun to talk about drinks that are, in one way or another, significant. They may not always be favorites. They may be classics. They may be obscure, but they're meant to give you a little bit of insight into Adam and me. And Adam, why don't you start things off for us? Oh, great. (laughs) I love going first. Uh, So yeah, I mean, I think the first drink that probably made me realize I was just super obsessed with wine was uh, I got to take a trip about five years ago to Italy. And this was before our vine pair, maybe even six or seven years ago. I was really interested in wine. I'd been doing uh, these wine and music uh, series here in New York City where I'd take a winemaker and partner them with a big indie rock band because at the time I was still working in the music business. So I had these connections to agents and uh, we'd like put them in a really small venue and do this thing called Vivo and Vino where we were like talking about creativity and things like that that goes into both music and wine. So I was into it enough that I knew, you know, experience wise and culturally, I thought it was a cool thing. Um, and so uh, basically the guy that taught me everything I know about wine, Keith Beavers, uh, owned an Italian, uh, restaurant where we used to do the concert series. And I mentioned to him that my, uh, wife and I were, were headed to Italy and like, I'd never been before. We were going to hit, uh, Rome and Florence, but we wanted to do a wine region. And, you know, I was thinking he was going to tell me what everyone else tells me, which is like, Oh, well, I mean, you're going to Florence. You guys should go to Tuscany. Instead, he was like, look, if you guys are you know, willing to schlep up to northern Italy, the only wine region you should go to is Piedmont. Um, he's like, it's, it's probably the most romantic region I've ever been to. It'll completely make you fall in love with wine. Uh, I think it's cooler than Burgundy. Um, you know, there's just something going on there that's really special. And so I was like, all right, let's do it. And he was so cool. And at the time when I had no connections, he hooked me up with this guy who was an importer distributor here in New York city. And also this guy had no reason to do this because, um, I was, you know, a nobody, I'm not, I'm not a wine buyer at the time. I'm not, a you know, the owner of a publication at the time. I'm just a person that's really getting into wine. So it was my wife and he hooked up all of these personal visits for us at all these wineries in Piedmont. And I just became a Barolo and Barbaresco, really Nebbiolo convert. I just fell in love. Um, I just, the wines were incredible. They had this soulfulness that I had never really experienced before. Um, I saw the romanticism of wines that can age in a way that I'd never seen them before. I fell in love with how floral the nose was of these wines, yet how drinkable so many of them were. Um, and I just got to know the people behind them. And I think that was really why, I mean, before then I had gone wine tasting before, but I had gone into, you know, American tasting rooms where I'm talking to someone behind the counter who is, you know, oftentimes employed by the winery and, depending on that person, you either get someone who's super knowledgeable or someone who is like, look, this is my job, you know, and I'm here because I get paid well and I'm also in it for tips. And, um, and so I never had an experience of really sitting down with the winemaker and touring the cellar with them and touring the vineyards with them in this way. Uh, and I just think that all of that combined made me, you know, fall in love with, with this grape and this region in a way that I think, uh, still sticks with me now. And it's still, you know, is my go-to wine. If everyone says like, if there's one wine that you would sort of want to drink on your deathbed, this would be it. If there was one wine that my entire cellar would be full of, it would be Nebbiolo. 
yeah, it just is this incredible wine that uh, I, I don't think I'll ever forget. But what about you? Because I'm waxing poetic way too much, and it's getting it's getting really lame. Oh, no worries. <laughs> so, well, so what about you, Zach? It's funny because I think uh, for me, my formative wine experience and the first wine I want to talk about is another Italian wine, uh, Brunello di Montalcino. So for me, the the first moment in my life where, where wine really resonated was when I was 19 and I was visiting uh, Florence. And I was there on a school trip, and it was very funny because it was – despite being 19 and thus – legally able to drink in Italy. We were not supposed to drink um, because apparently we couldn't be trusted, which to be fair to some of the people on the trip, that was definitely the case. Um, That's why every single person went on, yes, on exactly. trips abroad when they were, before they were 21. They're like, I'm sneaking booze on this exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, we had a couple of nights where we didn't have like large group activities and a friend of mine and I decided we were going to go out to dinner. And really this started because, um, not because of wine, but because of food. My dad had um, been to Florence a number of times and he had told me that, you know, the one thing you have to do when you're there is go find a really good Bistecca alla Fiorentina, which is kind of one of the, the classic dishes of Florence. And he'd even given me some money and he was like, look, I know you're going to spend this on booze, but like pretend like you're going to spend it on steak, which was appealing in and of itself. And so uh, my friend Phil and I went out and we found, we had asked the concierge where at the place we were staying and he made a recommendation. We ended up finding this like tiny little Italian trattoria in Florence. This was pre-Google Maps, so it was kind of a nightmare because Florence is not an easy city to navigate without a smartphone. And um, we finally go in there and uh, Phil and I are both like 30 years younger and infinitely less Italian than everyone else there. And so we're already feeling kind of a little bit off guard. And we sit down and we kind of decide, you know, like, well, what the heck, we're going to check this place out. We we order. The server was actually very gracious to us. And he asked us what we, what we wanted to drink. And prior to that point, when I'd been out in Florence drinking, I'd sort of had whatever the house red was. That was kind of just the default thing. You know, I don't know. Red wine sounds good. I didn't know any better. I was 19. Uh, but this was sort of a special meal. And so I told the server, I was like, well, what would you drink? And he kind of looked at us and he kind of, you know, was like, well, all right, fine. I'm going to take you at your word here. He made a recommendation of a wine on their list. And I remember looking and, and not knowing what any of the words meant. I didn't know what Brunello de Montalcino was. I didn't know where Montalcino was. I certainly didn't know what Brunello was. But I did know what 75 euros were. And <laughs> and I thought about it and I looked to Phil and he kind of looked at me and I was like, well, what the fuck? We're going to do this. So we got the wine and uh, the server came over and opened it and he decanted it for us and he poured me a taste like I knew what I was doing and I had seen this ritual in restaurants a few times. So I, Wait, you know, and you were 18, 19. Yeah. 19. Okay. And I like sniffed wow. the wine and was like, I don't know. Sure. It seems fine. Like I, again, not knowing actually what I was doing, but I knew enough to play along a little bit. And the wine was good. I remember being kind of like, well, whatever. I mean, it's cool and interesting and like better probably than the house wine, but I don't know enough to know if it's really worth it. Uh, and so they had, we, they brought us some antipasti while they, while the steak was cooking and all that. And, um, sipped the wine a little bit. He also brought us like a little half glass each of another wine to just sort of have in the meantime while the wine was opening, which was very nice. And finally, like the steak comes out, we have our wine. He's like, okay, try the wine again. And I taste it again. I'm like, oh, you know, that's pretty good. Like I, yeah, I'm kind of, okay, I get it. And I have the steak and the steak's amazing. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever this is worth worst case scenario. This is kind of a fun story. And then I come back and I taste the wine again with the steak in my mouth. And it was just this total, eye-opening experience. I finally, for the first time in my life, I understood kind of why people gave a shit about wine and especially wine with food because it was just the the two things combined were so much more 
flavorful and the and the flavors mesh so beautifully with one another in a way that I'd never experienced before with anything. Um, you know, my previous pairing experience was basically like what dish went with cherry coke or something like that. And so I didn't really I didn't really get it until that moment. And so to this day, Brunello Montalcino is a special wine to me. It's not always the wine I opt for, um, although I do enjoy them quite a bit. Um, but other things have come along that I've also uh, come to love. But it remains is this sort of central wine in my own personal story. And for that, I have a deep fondness for it. I got to say, man, it's pretty amazing to me that you were 19 years old and you had Brunello. I mean, like I at 19, I was, you know, drinking Coors Light. Uh, I probably I had maybe at wine I was drinking uh, – Maybe Concha y Toro, like I Yellowtail for <laughs> yeah. sure. I mean, let's be clear, um, Adam. Immediately after that, we went out to like a nightclub, and I'm sure I was doing shots of like whatever the cheapest thing they had. It it's wasn't just like kind of amazing that you knew enough <laughs> to even order it though, and that you knew, you know, and that you were willing to ball out at 75 euro. Like I'm yeah. just. You know, I'm I'm impressed. I, you were a pretty sophisticated kid. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't come through very often at those days, but every now and then I could pull I could pull it out. How about you? So what's what's another drink for you that's been that's been deeply important? So I'm switching it up a little bit. I know that we like pre-planned that's these cool. five drinks, but uh, you know, I was thinking about it more and more. So the probably the drink that made me uh get into just that drinks are cool and not just about, you know, the effect. And I, I like, I think about this a lot. Like I, I, we try, you know, here at Vine Pair all the time, you know, we talk about this to that, to remember that at the end of the day, like we like drinks because we do like the fact that there's alcohol in them. I think if, you know, if wine and beer and cocktails didn't have that effect that you get from them, we drink a lot less of them. It's why you don't see a lot of people drinking mocktails. Um, but I, I do think that like, there was a there was a moment where I realized that there was more to these drinks than just the fact that I was drinking them because of alcohol. And this is when I was in college, and this uh, craft brewery had fought, had opened in Atlanta. There had been a few others. I, I was, you know, but I wasn't going to them as much. And this craft brewery was, was called Sweetwater. And Sweetwater now I think is you know one of the top ten craft breweries in the United States. But at the time, there were these like upstart dudes from Colorado who basically said like we wanted to make craft beer. It felt too saturated in Colorado already. And like this is 2002, 2003. But they were like already feels too saturated in Colorado. So we are going to identify a place that looks like it's craft beer starved, and that was. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And so they opened this craft brewery like out by the airport uh, off of I-20. Now they're in this huge facility like off of I-85, but off of I-20 um, where you could go and you could help them bottle the beers and then you could walk, you could, you could have free beer while you were helping them bottle the beers. Yeah. And um, I don't know if I'm going to get them in trouble or not, but they didn't really care if you were underage. <laughs> so I was a, I was a freshman and we would go out there and bottle the beers Um I mean, I also had a pretty good fake ID, but, uh, you know, so I, I think they probably knew, I mean, there's no way that I looked 21. Let's just be clear. But, um, I went out there with some buddies and we helped them bottle the beers and this beer came across the line that was this, this beer called Sweetwater Blue. Um, I, I'm not really into fruit beers anymore, but at the time, this idea that they were making a beer and putting fresh blueberries in it, that was, was kind of a pale ale, but it had fresh blueberries and it was really interesting and unique. I was like, wow, this is a weird, really cool beer. Like, I didn't know that you, the people did this with beer. Like I'm again, like we said, I was drinking, I was going to college parties, drinking Pabst and, uh, Coors Light and Miller Light and, 
the fact that I had this beer was just was crazy to me. And then they were just so cool too, and they wanted to talk about it. They made it, and they're like, "Hey, you know, like everyone want to see like how, what how brewing works and all this stuff." It was just it was so different um, that I just got I was like, "Wow." Drinks can be really interesting. I think that's where I really bit the bug. And then I started getting into cocktails and wine. But I, I mean, you know, Sweetwater, free plug. Like, you're the reason that Vine Pair exists. Thank you so much. <laughs> They'll be sponsoring the next episode, let's hope. But one can hope. Yeah. For chance to dream. Yeah. What about you? Um, so I think for me, you know, I got my start in a lot of ways in the restaurant industry, bartending, um, and was interested in wine and beer to some extent. But cocktails were really kind of the first point of fascination for me. And uh, the cocktail for me that that was the most fascinating because it was the drink that to me was the most, I don't know, it was the hardest to understand how it worked, but but it worked is a cocktail called The Last Word. And it's not originally a Seattle cocktail, but it kind of has ties to Seattle because a, a bartender here named Murray Stetson was a guy who kind of revived it, dragged, dragged it out of some old, I don't know, 30s, 20s or 30s era Detroit cocktail book and started serving it. And I remember the first time I had it was at a bar here in Seattle called uh, Zigzag Cafe, where Murray worked for a long time. And it's this equal parts blend of gin, uh, green chartreuse, lime juice, and maraschino liqueur. And it's one of those drinks that, as I said, makes zero sense on the face of it. Like it is a lot of very, I mean, chartreuse is a kind of hard to get a hard to work with cocktail ingredient. Um, It can be pretty overpowering. You're not necessarily balancing it out. You know, you're not using a small amount of it. There's only a, 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 sorry, three quarters of an ounce of gin in there if you make it really traditionally. But somehow the drink worked in this incredibly dynamic way where you would get this sort of herbaceousness and um, all that from the chartreuse, the tartness from the lime juice, the botanicals and the sort of boozy uh, bite from the gin and this sort of sweetness and slight cherry nut from the maraschino liqueur. And it was like, Somehow it worked uh, when they were made correctly. And if you didn't get it quite right, it really didn't work. And pr- prior to that point, my cocktail uh, experience had largely been, you know, basically uh, old fashions and, Man- and uh, Manhattans, which can certainly be messed up, but are pretty forgiving in general. And if you use, you know, quality ingredients, you can fudge a little bit the amount of uh, vermouth or the amount of or the, how many dashes of bitters. And this idea of this cocktail that would could be amazing, but required a degree of precision. You know, you had to measure your ingredients. You had to stir it correct or shake it for the right amount of time, rather not stir it. And it just, if you got it right, you got it right. And if you got it wrong, it was really obvious. Something about that was really appealing to me. It's also, you know, it kind of has, it's this kind of refreshing, but also sweet drink. Um, and it's like, pretty vivid green, which is an interesting cocktail color. And I wasn't going to yeah. go out and order grasshoppers. So it was, it was just, for me, it was like, it was this drink and, you know, frankly, to be totally honest, probably part of it was it made me feel pretty cool and like in the hip crowd, you know, I almost, I almost thought about talking about something like Fernet, which was again, when I got started in the industry, kind of this drink that at the time was still largely unknown by people who weren't in the restaurant industry, but I don't actually like Fernet. I never really have. Um, and I, I really actually do like last words. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with that one, but it was really, there was something about the, the, not just the quality of it and the exactingness of it, but the kind of coolness of it that definitely appealed to me, especially when I was like in my early mid twenties. I just say, I think it's really similar. Uh, your passion for the last word compared to why I really like the Negroni, mm-hmm. um, which would probably be my third drink. It's, it's again, it's one of those drinks where, um, you know, I started having them, I don't know, five years ago, again, six years ago, I think I had them for the first time, maybe hanging out with my restaurant friends. Um, you know, I, I, I always, I always feel like a, like an outsider because I love the restaurant world, but I've actually never worked in it. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 
for whatever reason, you know, the, the odd jobs that I wound up doing never tended to be in the restaurant world. Um, that's probably loved, to your benefit. I'll be honest. Yeah, I know, but I <laughs> probably, but I loved the people that worked in it and I, I loved hanging out with them at night. And, uh, I think same kind of thing. Someone introduced me, uh, you know, late night, one night we went to a restaurant that was closing down and I was with some of my friends who worked in restaurants and they're like, Hey, like we're all going to have a Negroni to end the night. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool drink. And the more I started having it, I think the more you realize that while it is so simple, it is so, it has to be completely precise and the ingredients really matter or it can be a terrible cocktail. Like if the gin is not high quality, it is a terrible cocktail. Mm. If the vermouth is not high quality, it is a terrible cocktail. I mean, I've had, you know, I've had Negronis made with the cheapest sweet vermouth possible. And I've had Negronis made with like Ensica Formica and it's incredible. Um, And also if the proportions aren't exactly the same, it is completely out of balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and you have, you have Negronis. I mean, I've been obviously you know, in airports and things like that. And just like, I'll take a Negroni because now it's just like a cocktail you sort of crave. And someone does, you know, one, one part, uh, gin, one part Campari, and then two parts sweet vermouth. And you're like, whoa, this is the most cloying cocktail I've ever had. Or, you know, someone, you know, goes way too heavy on the Campari and then it becomes way too bitter or there's too much gin. And, you know, I think I really started to then see with the Negroni why measurements in cocktails matter, right? Like why it's not just, it really, it truly is a recipe and it's not just, eh, you know, it's throw some bourbon here out a sugar cube and like you're, you're pretty much good to go. And if you like a little boozier, it's fine. Like no true cocktails are all about specific proportions mm-hmm. and, you know, making a cocktail really is a lot like cooking you can totally oversalt a dish and you can add too much bitter, too many bitters. Um, and so that's really why I started to dig the Negroni. And then from there I was like, wow, there's so many other cool cocktails I can make. I will say I was not immediately you know trying to make the last word but again more power to you (laughs) well i had the advantage uh, of being able to fuck it up from behind a bar a bunch of times if i didn't get it right so it's easier when you're working with the bar's ingredients instead of your own at home i have to say the thing with the negroni for me is like i really really like negronis but i've come to realize i don't actually like campari very much like i used to be much more into campari but i feel like the kind of the, the interesting thing to me is i find that when i want that cocktail I opt for other sort of like similar ingredients like Aperol or something like that. And I just find it makes my drink like there's something about Campari to me that's just like, you know, there's a reason why some people kind of recoil from it. And I guess I've kind of gotten into more of that mindset where it's just like a little too there's like a little too much bitter orange like intensity. Um, And and I tend to like the like I love the format of a of a Negroni, but like the classic formulation, I think I'm kind of I'm not into it anymore. Right. I agree. I completely agree. I think it's kind of like out of fashion. It's not as cool as it used to be. I mean, I'm really into the Boulevardier now. I know that's just a, a, a simple swap out of, of uh, you know, whiskey for gin. But no, I agree with you. I think it's completely overdone at this point. But that's also like the great thing about a cocktail like that in a way that's like uh, maybe different from the last word, which can be modified, but it's a little trickier. Like the, the Negroni as like a concept and those ingredients, you can swap out one or even two of them and it still kind of retains a lot of the you know for something vaguely similar or even a different base spirit in a lot of cases and it retains a lot of what makes the negroni delicious without necessarily calling upon those exact flavors but you get that you know sort of bitter note that slight sweet note that medicinal herbal note and that sort of more boozy punchy note and they all kind of work together and i agree like i'm more of a boulevardier or an old pal um kind of person if i'm if i want that sort of formulation but it's an i mean it's an iconic cocktail and and it's like 
again, it makes me think about how far we've come as a drinking culture where, you know, that <laughs> that for you walking into an airport bar and ordering a Negroni and probably them at least knowing what it is, not having to like look at a, you know, yeah. at, a, at a manual or look it up on their phone is, is a testament to kind of where just broadly as a, as a cocktail culture we are, which is awesome. I'm telling you though, like, you know, as the Negroni was the biggest cocktail of the last, I would say two or three years, I really think the next big cocktail is going to be the gin and tonic. Huh. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it's, uh, there's, there's so much you can do, especially mm-hmm. on both sides of that formulation. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been, I've only heard, I haven't really been to Spain, but you know, when you hear about the kind of culture there and how, um, they, there are places that are entirely devoted to that drink. Um, that is, yeah, I, I could, I could totally see that. And it's, again, the gin tonic is, I mean, it's freaking delicious and kind of an all seasons kind of drink, which is nice. Like the Negroni is almost that way for me, although there are, there are occasionally times a year when it's not really what I'm craving. But I'm going to talk now about something. Uh, I'm going to do a, a thing that I'm talking about a drink that I don't particularly care for, and I'm going to talk oh, about wow. it. <laughs> what, why are you doing it? Well, I think it's important sometimes to define ourselves not just by our favorites, by the thing, but by the things we don't like. And I think it's imp- it's interesting to me too because the thing for me that that when I first started getting into drinks, and then I got more interested in it, and was working in the restaurant industry, and then also started writing and things like that. The thing that put me at odds the most with uh, friends, family. And my readers, et cetera, was my general disinterest and distaste for IPAs because especially here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, to say you don't like IPAs is kind of like, I don't know, saying you don't like apple pie. Um, it just – To people, say it almost anywhere at this point. That's true. Like, like, that's true. Yeah. But it, it's just <laughs> there. there is something that people just don't – you know, you can say you don't like almost any other kind of beer and people kind of just go, okay. Like if I say I don't like porters, people, even if people like porters, they're like, okay, I don't like, you know, pilsners. That's fine. But I don't like IPAs is are fighting words to a lot of people. And I think some of it is because there are a lot of people for whom beer and IPA are fundamentally uh, interchangeable words at this point. Like they don't drink anything but IPAs for the most part. And because I think of what, like what the IPA represents as this sort of like, counter programming to macro beer and for that standpoint i respect you know that for a lot of people they wanted to go from sort of what many people would consider relatively flavorless beer to something that uh, if nothing else definitely packs in a lot of flavor i think just for me the issue is it it conflicts with my sort of personal preference for balance in drinks and not to say there aren't uh, some ipas that i'm fine with and there's even occasionally the time when i i want a little bit of it but the general trend, the general sort of move towards these um, IPAs, doubles, triples, things with tons of hops, tons of booze, just intensity of flavor as a, I guess I would say, as a substitute for balance and for complexity, it, it just, it rankles me. It's not what I like. It's not, it's not what I'm interested in in drinking. And that would be fine if I didn't feel like IPAs were and still are crowding out a whole bunch of other beer styles. Now, I think that's a little bit changing. I think you're seeing a lot of interest in other beer styles, um, certainly in this part of the country, but I think probably nationwide. The downside is some of those styles are also going towards extremes. And we could talk about uh, the intensity of sour beers on some other podcast. But I just I find the this sort of embrace of, well, if a, if a fair bit of flavor is good, then all the flavor must be better as an ethos, just something I, not that I can't agree with. And um, I will just continue to piss people off by saying that, I guess. I don't think you're pissing people. I mean, I do think 
Well, yes, I don't always I, say it as nicely as that, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a lot of people, I think, who really dislike the IPA, including brewers. I mean, when, you know, like you talk to a lot of brewers and like they get you alone. Like this is off the record, right? They'll say, yeah, like I, I'm really sick of this style, but it's it's ordered more than anything else in my tap room. And it's asked for by more than by every single account. You know, I have to have an IPA. A lot of people don't like brewing those, but I, I think it is. It's like we be, we become a nation of extreme flavors. And so IPA is an extreme flavor in the same way that, you know, we love really spicy things. Like I'm actually like really already really sick of spicy beer. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't, why are we putting, like, I don't care. You know, someone just sent us the other day to Vine Pair HQ, a tequila with ghost pepper in it. And I'm just like, really? Like I like tequila. Do we really have to put ghost pepper in tequila? I mean, just come on, but we really, <laughs> we love, we love these extreme flavors. And so I think hoppy flavors you know, the, the bitterness is just really, really attractive to a lot of people. I happen to like enjoy the bitterness. I don't need a double IPA all the time. I like it once in a while. I'm, I'm kind of now getting into the, you know, New England style IPAs, which are much more floral and citrus flavored. Um, but I completely agree with you. I think they've overtaken what craft beer is. And like, I think, you know, you're not considered by a lot of craft beer drinkers to be a craft beer brewer unless you make an IPA. Mm -hmm. But then even if you don't like making that IPA, you're judged by that IPA. It'd be like saying to every single winemaker, Hey, you know, like, yeah, you're a winemaker, but like, you're not a real winemaker unless you make a Cabernet Sauvignon. And then, you know, if your Cabernet Sauvignon is shitty, uh, I'm still going to judge you for it, even though it's not a a wine you want to make. Um, I think that's, I think that's very similar here and that's really unfortunate. Um, but it sort of is what it is. But yeah, I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying. Um, you know, w- which is why there it's, it can be hard to admit you don't like it yeah. because there's just so many other people that love it that they're like, come on, man. Like, what do you mean? You just haven't had one you like. Right. And it's like, no, like I just, I don't like it. Like, can that be okay, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's definitely a situation where maybe I can also, I can work on being a little more tactful because, uh, there might be slightly more colorful language that goes along with it, especially if I might've had a beer or two already. Well, I mean, look, like, true, but I, there's there's a lot of things that I'm also willing to admit that I don't like. Like, you just don't want to. I think the problem with the industry that we're in is that you get really nervous about having an opinion of not liking something because you automatically get are scared someone's going to think you're a snob. Yeah. Right. So it's like, oh well, oh, Zach. Of course you're a snob. You work in alcohol. So you, of course, want to be different and not like IPAs. And, I mean, I get the same – you know, people – I get the same way. If if we're going to be really open and honest about wines I don't love, I'm not the biggest fan of Malbec. I'm just not. Um, so I'm, 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 again, I'm, I'm skewing our original list and we'll go there. You know, I, I'm really, I really try. There are a few that I've enjoyed, but Malbec for the most part is not my, my go-to wine, my jam, if you will, because I find it too jammy. <laughs> uh, and I, I hate saying that, you know, anywhere, and I'm probably going to regret saying it on our podcast because I don't want to be labeled as this person who's like a snob and holier than thou, et cetera. I completely understand why people love it. I, you know, that's why I like tasting in, you know, within groups to understand what it is about it that people are drawn to. But for me, I just haven't had enough of it that I've said, wow, this is an incredible grape that should be made on its own as a wine. I think it's an, it's a wonderful supporting player. It goes really well in, in blends. 100% Malbec for me in the way that it's being made currently, just not my thing. Well, I think it's also one of those situations where the varietal has probably been done a disservice by its popularity uh, because it's created this huge demand for a wine. And 
I think there's probably some examples of 100% or nearly 100% Malbec out there that you and I would taste and say, this is a really, this is a very good wine. But those are a little bit few and far between, and they're definitely drowned in an ocean of pretty inexpensive, like maybe not particularly interesting, but maybe also a little bit inoffensive Malbec. And and it's funny, I, I've talked to my wife about this. I We don't, I don't really understand when the Malbec moment happened. I think it's probably when like Australian wine stopped being cool. And so people needed, there needed to be something else on the shelves or a glass pour that was eight or $10 that was red that people could kind of get behind. And, you know, Argentinian Malbec in particular was kind of like there to soak up all that attention and all those uh, glass pour slots. Um, But it's just like, yeah, again, it's like, to me, I have to work hard to find one that I like. Um, and I agree. And it's unfortunate because in some ways, like you said, it's, it actually makes for an extremely, um, uh, great blending component. Um, and it's, sometimes it's like, I think people, because it's become so popular as a single varietal, it tends to people, winemakers tend to shin, shy away from blending it in maybe for fear of sort of over, not overcomplicating things, but, uh, you know, sort of that association with maybe a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, inexpensive and less serious. I don't know. This is maybe a little speculative, but no, but I, I think it probably is. I think that's true. It's like, why, you know, why would I blend it in when I can sell it as a single varietal, especially if I'm from, you know, that country from the Southern hemisphere uh, where people, and I'm, I'm from that region called Mendoza, you know, <laughs> and people have become really willing to pay a pretty good price for, for a wine that says Malbec. Uh, why would I blend it with other grapes? And, you know, it's it's hard for me because I understand that people like it because it's, you know, smooth. That's what I always hear. Oh, I like Malbec because it's smooth. And for me, that's because it's crazy oaked. Uh, it's pretty ripe. Uh, there's a lot of jamminess going on there. And so I usually avoid it. And I always feel bad because, you know, we do a book club uh, once a month, like, you know, with a bunch of our friends. And when there's a Malbec on the table, I usually just don't pour it in my glass. I try not to say I don't want it. I just don't pour it on my glass. And I always get nervous that I'm going to get this look from my wife. That's like, what are you doing? Like you're, you're being a snob. It's like, no, I just, I, I do recognize at the end of the day that it is alcohol and that it is a drug and that it isn't 100% healthy for us. So I try to limit the alcohol that I'm putting in my body and I only want to put alcohol in my body that I like. That's a <laughs> good rule generally. Yeah, and it's not that I'm trying to be rude. It's just why would I why would I drink something that we know is not 100% good for us that we do know has calories and sugar and things like that if I don't really find it pleasurable. And I don't want to dissuade you if you find it pleasurable, which is why I try not to be vocal about it. Um but it's, you know, it's between a rock and a hard place where, you know, then then people always ask me, like, well, what do you think about it? And then I feel like I have to be honest and then I feel like a, a complete dick. Yeah, that is a tough one. So this is this is tangential, but I, I have to ask. So do you have this occur to you a lot where where people like you either go to someone's house or, or people come over to your place or whatever and they bring wine or open wine and you're like, oh, God, really? Do I want to drink this? Like, I don't want to be like you have to kind of do that thing of like, well, do I be am I rude and sort of say, no, I'm OK or do you kind of just choke it down? Because I come across that occasionally, and I still have yet to figure out exactly how to handle that all that gracefully. Uh, it turns out that most often when people come over to our house, um, they don't bring wine because, shockingly, I have a lot of it already. <laughs> um, but the that moment of like, oh, do I – like, especially if someone doesn't know me very well or like I'm not like good friends with them, do I like – yeah, it's, it comes back to the snobbery thing a little bit or perception of snobbery. Like do you generally just kind of – 
are you cool just being like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna not drink it, and like, I'm not gonna necessarily tell you that I think it's bad or not good or not what I want, but just kind of not gonna go that route, or do you just sometimes you just kind of pour it in the glass and just swirl it a lot and hope it disappears? I mean, if I if I'm at someone's house or a party and there's there's wine there that I'm not 100% about, but that's the wine, I drink it. I uh, I never want to be in a position where I make someone feel uncomfortable or, or feel bad about their selections. Um, and I, I probably wouldn't say one way or the other. If they ask me if I like it, I'll be like, yeah, it's fine. Like I won't say, oh, it's the best wine I've ever had. But I never want to be in a position where I make someone feel bad for the wine they've chosen or the beer they've chosen, et cetera. I was in a situation a uh, number of years ago with people who I, I – would label as wine snobs because they are out there. Let's be honest. They exist. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And we were at a restaurant and they were like appalled by the wine list. And like the people that had brought us to the restaurant were really nice and telling us how much, you know, they loved this place and they just couldn't wait to take us there. And, you know, I'll always find something. And they just refused and were like, oh, you know, we're just going to have a beer. And they brought us this restaurant too because they thought we would like the wine list. And I just thought it was so rude to be at a place where people were really excited about something and to say, oh, you know, we're going to have a beer. They clearly made the people that brought us there feel like crap, um, you know, et cetera. So I, you know, I found a a glass of wine that I actually really enjoyed. Um, You know, it wasn't the best wine list in the world, but I could understand for the region of the country we were in that it was probably a pretty good one. Um, And so, yeah, I've always just said ever since that experience that I'm not going to be that guy. I also think when when someone asks me or tells me like, oh, you're you're probably a bit of a wine snob. I'm like, no, but I know a lot of them, and if you'd like to meet them, I can set that up. <laughs> Very true. So uh, I'm gonna. So tr- what's your what's your last one? I think actually we I think we've each got uh, I've got uh, a couple more here. I think we've got to get through here, or we can we can call it at four. I don't care. Um, Did we do four already? Did we do well, you've you've three? already given you've given me four. I think we're on. I think oh, uh, I think Malbec got, was number four. Yeah, yeah, go, you, yeah, you're on four. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a varietal, a wine that I think, um, I, I my feelings towards it are very are very uh, complicated, and that's Chardonnay. So I one of the things I hate hearing from people when they're in the restaurant and they're asking me or we're talking about wine is oh I don't drink Chardonnay because to me that's like saying I don't drink wine. Like the the length and breadth of styles of Chardonnay out there is as diverse as any other varietal. And unless you don't drink white wine at all, you probably are going to find a Chardonnay that you like. You just don't maybe like a specific style that's become pretty well known. I personally find that Chardonnay is the basis for many of the whites I find most exciting. And also, sadly, some of the whites I find the least exciting. Um, And that to me is kind of the fun part of what of what we do in some way is like is having to sort of puzzle through those things because I like it that there's not a single I don't think there's a varietal out there where I'm like I don't like any of this uh, at least as far as wine goes and I don't think there's a varietal where I'm like no matter what I like it because in the end style matters winemaking intent and approach matters and of course sight and terroir and all those things matter as well Um, but I will say that Chardonnay is an exceptional variety, and I I encourage those of you who are listening who might be like, oh, I don't drink Chardonnay, to take that as a instead of a as a given or as a fact about yourself as a little bit of a personal challenge and say, you know what, I might have had some bad experiences with potentially an oaky, buttery Chardonnay, but I'm not going to let that turn me off from all Chardonnays because the right Chardonnay is out there for you. I promise you will find you- them. Do you think, though, Zach, that a lot of that just has to do with the fact that, like, the there are wines out there that are made from Chardonnay that 
because they don't have the you know the grapes name on the label we don't realize it's chardonnay because for me what i've run into a bunch is i've talked to people and i've been like oh hey like i'm gonna order this bottle it's chardonnay and they'd be like oh like i hate chardonnay i really don't want to drink it i'm like oh well it's, it's chablis oh i love chablis yeah well you that know, is definitely that's, true that's the old world's fault you know it's the fact that they named the wines based on the place it was made as opposed to the grape that it's made from. And so people are just sort of like, Oh, right. It, 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 it's, it's Chardonnay. I just, I really just don't like Chardonnay from California. Yeah. That's usually what, that's what I've run into a bunch. Um, but you know, who knows? I, I agree with you though. I think that it's, it's this white wine grape that I, I, I hate a lot of the wines that is, that make, that are made from Chardonnay. And I love, 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 I would say are some of my favorite wines ever are made from chardonnay yeah and again it's it's partially chardonnay is so widely grown because it is so malleable like it can make wines that are incredibly lean and crisp and mineral focused in chablis and it can make you know incredibly ripe tropical and then when hit with a fair amount of oak these kind of oaky rich vanilla buttery fruit bombs in California or Australia or pick your other places and they can make kind of every kind of white wine in between and yes it's true that especially varietally labeled the wines that you might find in most grocery stores or in a fair number of restaurants lean more towards the latter than the former but yeah it is funny to me yeah people sometimes are like oh I don't like Chardonnay I'm like well how about some Chablis and they're like oh yeah that sounds great and I'm like okay okay. we'll just we'll just slide right past that one and move on Um, because you know that's part of it too is sometimes you just kind of have to go you gotta have to listen you don't have to necessarily listen to all all the words that someone says just their intent maybe behind them (laughs) Uh, cool so I think for my last my last drink my number five uh, I chose this drink because it's where I'm from well not exactly where I'm from but I am from the south um, and so it's bourbon I just uh, I love bourbon I think it's delicious Uh, it's one of the first you know spirits I ever consumed. Uh, I like it in all forms. I like it young. I like it older. I like it from a lots of different, lots of different, uh, distillers. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bourbon fan. That's all about, that's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> in truth, in true Southern fashion. Okay. So here's my thing on bourbon. I, I think bourbon is amazing, but how often do you come across bourbon that you feel like is, let's say, radically mismatched price-wise versus quality. Like, not in the South, because I think actually one of the crazy experiences for me was going to a friend's wedding in Lexington, I mean, in Louisville, excuse me, and uh, being like, oh, wow, here, bourbon is affordable, and, like, even, like, pretty high-end stuff is not crazy expensive, and then you start getting into what some of that stuff costs in other parts of the country, and to me, like, the the insane market for say Pappy Van Winkle is something that's hard for me to wrap my head around because to me, it's just like, I mean, I don't know. I've tasted some of those and they're good, but they're not that good. I mean, I would say number one, I still think that on the whole bourbon quality to price is so much fairer than scotch. Uh, I think there's a lot of single malts out there that are very expensive, um, and you can still find a much higher quality bourbon uh, for around the same amount you're willing to pay. Um, but I think, you know, there is one bourbon out there that's very highly priced, which is Pappy. And I've only had gotten to have Pappy a few times before. Um, it's like that unicorn bourbon. 
I will say every time I've had it, I've really enjoyed it probably for two reasons. One, uh, I know how much it costs. So I think that really plays a huge factor in my enjoyment of it. And two, because I do think it's this incredibly well-made bourbon. I think the reason that we like Pappy is because Pappy is a weeded bourbon. So uh, for those out there that don't know what that means, um, you know, you have to use corn as the uh, primary mash bill, but then you can add, you know, rye, wheat, et cetera. And so it's the, the next grain that is the highest proportion in Pappy is wheat. And weeded bourbons uh, tend to create a smoother bourbon, um, you know, as opposed to a spicier bourbon that uses rye. And so I think that's why a lot of people tend to really also love Pappy. Um, whereas, you know, Bullet, for example, is a rye heavy bourbon, mm-hmm. which is why it has more bite. Um, but I mean, I agree with you to some extent that there is a little bit of, you know, price gouging in the world of bourbon, but I don't see it that much even here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I walk into a, a wine or liquor store or whatever in, in New York, I'm still going to be, I'm going to find a bourbon with age. So, you know, 10 years or something. And that if I'm saying I want a bourbon that's at least 10 years old, I'm not going to find a scotch at the same price point. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I will I will finish up with so one of the questions I get a lot is, "Oh, what's your favorite wine?" And I hate that question because it's like, I don't know, what's your like it's a kind of I can't answer <laughs> what my favorite food is either because there's a lot of variables like where am I? What season is it? What like I don't know what I feel like. I don't have one favorite food and I certainly don't have one favorite wine. But when someone kind of makes me answer that question, the the answer I always go with is champagne. And I think that's because champagne is this this incredible beverage where you you don't have to know a single thing about it to understand that it's something pretty special. Um, there's a reason that we tend to associate it with celebrations and things like that. And then when you start learning a little bit more about it, you realize just how magical a beverage it is, how much goes into it, how much the sort of place it comes from is so uh, central and singular, and yet um, the wine is can be vastly different stylistically, uh, depending on who's making it and sort of what they're intending to do. And it's just, I also think like, it's kind of impossible for me to like, have a glass of champagne and not feel at least a little bit better about how things are going. And sometimes, you know, it's a it's a celebration. And that's just just the little bit of icing on top. And sometimes it's been a really shitty day. And that glass of champagne is really the thing I want at that moment. Um, it's just, I don't know. Um, I, I just, it, it never, it's, it, there's never been a time where I've not been interested in having, uh, some champagne. It's always kind of a, a thing for me. And, and I would encourage people to consider it as more than just a special occasion wine. Sometimes of course the price is a little daunting for your average, um, night at home drinking, although there's a lot of other quality sparkling wine out there that isn't necessarily champagne that can certainly, uh, be a good, uh, Tuesday night fill in. But, but champagne is special, and um, I hope that people who enjoy drinking wine out there uh, recognize that and appreciate that. I love champagne. <laughs> it's really delicious. It is. Uh, so so tell me, you know, we've talked through all these five. I feel like I know you a lot better now than I did at the beginning. I really know that you hate IPA, <laughs> which is good to know. So I will never order one for you. Thank you. Um, but I would also love to know, like, one drink you're drinking right now. That's a, that's a great question. So for me, one of the things that I've – I've thought about a lot is um, I, I've just kind of come to grips with the fact that I am in my heart when it comes to wine, a white wine person first. And I started out as a red wine person and that was where my interests lie. And, you know, I told, I talked about the Brunello de Montalcino, which is a red wine. Um, and a lot of my early wines were that I loved were red and I still love some red wines quite a bit. 
But I'm a white wine person through and through, I think. And it, a lot of it has to do with my appreciation for how challenging it is to make a really good white wine. Um, it's harder than making a really good red wine, in my opinion, and talking to a lot of winemakers. Um, and so the wine that right now that I've been enjoying a lot is um, a wine from here in Washington. Uh, it's a Roussan from a winery called Lada. Um, and uh, they're actually, uh, the winery is actually here in Seattle, um, although the fruit comes from the Columbia Valley in eastern Washington. Uh, and what I love about this wine is it, was something that I came across a couple of years ago in a tasting um, at a like a trade tasting, and rarely at those events do I come across something that I think genuinely stands out as like spectacular and new to me. And I'd never tried uh, Andrew Lotta's wines before, and this this Roussan was really the one that caught me. Um, he does some uh, a little bit of new oak on it, which is a little bit atypical for most uh, Roussan production, with a few exceptions in um, the Southern Rhone, which is kind of where the grape has its home. Um, and, but it, it doesn't come across as oaky particularly. It just has this incredible sort of rich texture and um, nutty, bitty, nutty, bitter quality that is really uh, beautiful. And, and you know, I'm, a, as I'm sure we'll come across it in time, a, a pretty big advocate for w- some of what's going on here in Washington as far as wine goes. And um, whites in particular from the state haven't, particular, haven't gotten a lot of respect or attention both within the industry and from um, the outside necessarily. Uh, But I think this is a wine that should be, should have more um, attention paid to it. And I think um, that's going to happen. I think uh, the, the, the whites, especially from varietals like Roussan here in Washington are, can be pretty, pretty spectacular. And we have the advantage of not having to charge an arm and a leg for them. How about you? What are you into right now? So I would say the, the other, the one drink i'm really sort of digging on is i i got into sour beer mm-hmm. so i really like the just the funk of it um i really one beer that i love right now is uh, westbrook goza so it's got some salt to it it's real, i think it's really great with fried foods it's really great with with uh you know seafood and things like that it's almost similar to a sparkling wine i think there's other uh like Allagash Cool Ship uh, that, you know, these these are sour beers that can kind of almost taste a little like natural wine. So I kind of say like, oh, if, you, if you're if you into natural wine, maybe just drink sour beer. Yeah. Um, it's a lot cheaper yeah, for one thing. A heck of a lot cheaper. So I, I, I'm just I'm, – I'm into those flavors right now. It's kind of a casual thing and, and yeah, that's about it. But, uh, you know, Zach, I, I think I – I know you a lot better, as I said, now than I did at the beginning. So I look forward to having a lot more conversations about drinks as this podcast evolves, uh, bringing in you know new people and getting to hear their perspectives, having some of them teach us some things we don't know. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a, a really fun time. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, Adam. All right. Well, see you guys next week. 